Welcome to Grow PDX here on X-Ray FM. Grow PDX is a live call-in radio show and podcast focused on gardening, farming, community food systems, and more. You know, plants for people, pollinators, and the planet. And now we turn to the host of Grow PDX, Weston Miller of Oregon State University. Good afternoon and welcome to Grow PDX radio show and podcast. I'm your host, Weston Miller of OSU with digital producer Diana Suarez. We're coming at you live on X-Ray FM and via Facebook Live at The Oregonian. Today on Grow PDX, we're happy to welcome Nick Wyman to the show. He's with OSU's Department of Horticulture and is a orchard crop specialist. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Weston. And before we get started, I do have a little gardening humor for you, Nick. Where do apples love to take a vacation? Uh, I give up. Fuji. Ah, <laughs> okay, like Fuji apples. Fuji nice. or Fiji. And then, um, Diana, how well is your garden growing? Silver bells and cockle shells. I well, <laughs> only time, T-H-Y-M-E, ah, will tell. Got it. <laughs> All right, so garden humor is a way that we start the show here on Grow PDX. And Nick, before we talk shop about plants and horticulture, sure. uh, tell us a little bit about your job for OSU Extension Service. Uh, sure, I'm an extension specialist. So um, for orchard crops, I cover the entire Willamette Valley. Uh, I, I focus on commercial agriculture. And uh, since it's orchard crops, we're primarily talking about hazelnuts. Hazelnuts, okay. Yeah. But there are other orchard crops people grow in the Willamette Valley. Some tree Valley, fruits. Some yeah. tree fruits. Also known as filberts. Uh, and yes. we'll talk about those yeah. soon enough. Yeah. And Nick, how did you get into the field, so to speak, in uh, in horticulture? Um, well, my background's really in entomology and IPM. And I used to work in orchards in uh, eastern Washington, up in the apple and cherry industries up okay. there. Cool. Now we're going to talk about hazelnuts, and hazelnuts are big in the Willamette Valley. I've got a branch of a native hazelnut here, which is different than the agricultural crop hazelnuts. But overall, uh, why are hazelnuts such a big deal here in Oregon? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. Um, hazelnuts were widely planted. European hazelnuts were widely planted by European settlers in the U.S., and they uh, just sort of through self-selection, they found out that there is an endemic disease on the East Coast that sort of prevented the industry from thriving there. And that's the Eastern filbert blight. That, correct. Okay. And we did not have that here until the 1970s. Yeah. And how did the, who brought it here in the 1970s? How did it get here? The disease. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a great question. Probably on nursery stock. So mm. since okay. that time, mm -hmm. there's been a quarantine on imports of uh, hazelnut plant material mm -hmm. to Oregon. 
Okay, so then the the industry did well here because it didn't get the disease in the 70s. The, the industry um, didn't do so well because the de- disease came in and hit pretty hard. Well, um, the disease is just one part of the story. We also have the perfect climate. So if you look at where hazelnuts are grown around the world, it's usually near a big body of water, right, so which really moderates. Region. Well, really what's important is the winter climate. The winter climate. So climate. Moder- okay. moderate winter climate because that's when pollination takes place. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And now you mentioned that the, the blight came in and affected the industry, but now it's on the rebound based on resistant varieties developed at OSU. How's this been a game changer? Well, once the blight got into Oregon, it really started a uh, decline in the hazelnut uh, varieties that we were growing, and the acres started to go downhill, basically. And we're still hanging on to some of that older acreage. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, these new varieties are different in that they have genetic resistance to the disease. That means less uh, fungicide applications are necessary. Also, it's just a lot easier. You don't have to spend all winter out uh, pruning um, eastern filbert blight cankers out of the trees. Mm. Okay, so it's decreased the cost of production and made it easier to grow. Overall. Absolutely, Absolutely, yes. Oh God! Cool. And yeah, what what is the what does the production look like in Oregon right now? What's the acreage like, and how has it changed over the years? It was largely uh, steady from the uh, beginning of the industry in the early 1900s until yeah. the. Um, through the 50s, really. Um, since 2007, the acreage has doubled, and that really um, goes along with the time when the first new varieties were released out of the breeding program. Okay, so it's it's becoming a more widely grown crop in the Willamette Valley. Is it also grown outside of the Willamette Valley? Um, it is. Historically, the industry sort of spanned uh, the Willamette Valley. Uh, there's some down in the Umpqua Valley. Um, and then also Western Washington and the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Okay, so again, close to the coast. Now, production-wise, hazelnuts are one thing. Um, folks might also be interested in growing hazelnuts in home garden scenarios. What's your advice there? Um, it's You need a lot of room to have hazelnut plants in your okay. backyard. So if you feel like you have the room, then it is uh, quite... Uh, nice plant to grow Um, but you need to make sure that you have correct pollinizers because um, hazelnuts are self-incompatible so you need uh, pollinizers you would need uh, compatible pollen so you need at least two plants then exactly Mm -hmm. okay and each plant takes up 15 feet by 15 feet or so or bigger even yeah and the canopy can reach uh, you know 30 feet pretty easily on a mature tree Okay, so, so not not uh, really good for people with small ladders. <laughs> yes. So and the then, new the new varieties, um, some of them are smaller. They're yeah. about seventy percent of the vigor okay. of the older trees. But I would encourage homeowners to look at um, some of the ornamental hazelnuts. So there are some smaller uh, trees that are more dwarfing that will produce nuts, such as uh, contorted hazelnuts. Okay. The OSU breeding program has released a couple of these that have the same uh, gene for blight resistance. So that's it. Okay. And then ultimately the production that folks are going to get off of a couple bushes is going to be pretty low. It will be pretty low. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they are gorgeous landscape plants. And then the native hazelnut just grows naturally in woodland areas. Absolutely. And is that also um, something that people can buy and plant? 
Um, I have not seen that for sale usually. Um, is there a quarantine on it? I know there was for a while, and I'm trying to determine if there still is. Well, there's a couple things. The the native hazelnut that we have here, uh, Corylus carnuta, Californica, is resistant to blight. Um, however, it is not really grown commercially, and so it, yeah, it doesn't really produce. Yeah, well you'd have a hard time finding a source. There's yeah. another native North American hazelnut, which is Corylus americana. Yeah. Um, that's the one that um, the eastern filbert blight is endemic on. It grows over most of the U.S. Okay. And it's a much smaller tree. It would be much more um, at home in a backyard. However, due to the quarantine, okay. you it can't get them can't in. Can't get it here yeah. as well. Okay. And then the shells of the hazelnut industry make great mulch. Um, where do you know where people can get it, and and some of the applications people might use, people might use it. Mm, off the top of my head, I don't know the company, but in Mount Angel, there's a company that's producing everything from kitty litter. They have a product that is um, a slug deterrent. Okay, because um, the slugs reportedly don't like to go over the sharp shells. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, I think it's going to maybe deter slugs, but not really prevent them. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. This is Grow PDX Radio Show and Podcast. I'm Weston Miller with producer Diana Suarez. We're talking with Nick Wyman of OSU's Department of Horticulture. Diana, who's joining us on Facebook this afternoon? Yeah, we got a couple friends with us today. Thanks to Lisa, Roy, Rita, Dennis, and Heather um, for commenting. We also have a um, couple friends, uh, Karen, Nguyen, Tassos, and Vicky. Thanks so much. And... Lisa, or is it Rita? One of one of our friends is saying that we're getting they're getting a lot of stink bugs. Do we know how to get rid of stink ah, bugs? Ah, yeah. that is a great <laughs> question and leads us really well into our next set of questions because okay. Nick happens to be an expert in the brown marmorated <laughs> stink bug. Okay. And I'm guessing she's getting lots of stink bugs in her home. Um, oh. Nick, what is the deal with stink bugs and what can people do? So this time of year, they're really apparent to homeowners because they're starting to stir a little bit and they... People ask me, how do I keep them out of my house? Well, at this time of year, they're not trying to get in your house. They're trying to they're get trying out. They're trying to get out of your house. Yeah. Okay, so they've, they've holed up for the winter, they have. and they're there. And tell us about their life cycle. What's next? So they'll be moving out onto plants next. And in terms of um, their activity, usually homeowners don't notice them very much unless they have severe problems like in their garden area Okay. Um, during the summer months. But during the fall, that's when they start to aggregate again and try to enter homes and that's when we get the most uh, calls. And this is a relatively new pest. Tell us about the history of the brown marmorated stink bug in, in Oregon. Well it was first found in 2004. It might have been here much earlier. That okay. was just when it was first noticed. Yeah. And um, it's pretty much statewide now and it's in all the important uh, production areas for, as far as high value ag crops. So up and down the Willamette Valley, out yeah. in the Hood River and Roscoe County. Down to the California border, out yeah. to uh, LaGrande, even that far east. And, um, and, you know, it's a pest that affects a lot of different people from homeowners to um, Growers, yeah. How uh, does businesses. It, how does it affect people economically in terms of the agriculture culture of the hazelnuts? Well, in agriculture, it's directly damaging to crops. So sure. uh, hazelnuts are a crop that they like quite they a bit, like. yeah. and they'll feed right through the hardened off shell, if, if you can believe that. Yeah. So they're pretty amazing. 
Is there like another another type of bug that likes stink bugs that you could introduce? That yeah, that's that a great is question. That's a great question. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So we've sort of been looking at that for a long time. If you go to China where the stink bug is from, it's oh. n- only a periodic problem. Uh-huh. And they think that's because of a wasp that attacks the eggs. And hmm. this wasp we were considering for potentially releasing in Oregon. So it's mm-hmm. been in the quarantine facility down at Oregon State on campus uh, since 2010. And the goal with that research was to prove that it would not uh, affect other um, insects if yeah. it were to be released in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it just showed up on, on its own. Into uh, We found it in Portland last year. The oh. year before, it was found in Vancouver. Huh. So this kind of short-circuited that effort to evaluate the parasitoid for uh, for us actually releasing it. In yeah. a bit of a relief, I imagine, because that, that's not an easy process to evaluate a biocontrol agent and to release it. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely true. It's like 10 years of work. And yeah. Well, he said he's at where it's when you're seven now of doing the research. It's been in quarantine since 2010. So, yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the other side of this is it's controversial. So yeah. we are not responsible for... Um, releasing an exotic insect, even though we think that it's going to be the best possible solution to this problem because this parasitoid will be active not only in urban and natural areas where we have a lot of BMSB, but also in the agricultural areas. So So the idea is that the samurai wasp, it's a great name, is here and that hopefully its populations are going to increase and that it will perform moderate control. Mm And Absolutely. Keep it from being a I think over operating. the long run, it'll really make a big difference. And then in the meantime, um, what can those homeowners be doing about it when they are emerging and going out onto their crops? So it's pretty tough, and I've talked to many homeowners that have given up on gardening oh, because the populations are so severe around oh, their homes. No. And um, the best solution I can offer them is to try exclusion. So if you can try um, put netting over your crops. Over the crops. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Which isn't easy to do and to maintain. It's not easy, but you know some of these folks have maybe a balcony garden, you know, right. just a small box. And then it's fairly easy to protect mm-hmm. tomatoes yeah. in that situation. Let's protect my tree, my giant tree in my backyard. Nobody can look at or touch the tree. That's kind of yeah. Does it seem like um, for garden folks that? People are having sort of more severe problems when there are smaller gardens right near structures where they've been congregating. I mean, I've seen them out in my garden and in other sites, but not such that it's causing tons and tons of damage. Well, that's good. Um, we don't clearly understand the reasons why they like certain areas. In fact, I'll investigate houses uh, where there are massive homeowner complaints, and they'll be the only person in the neighborhood that has thousands of stink bugs on their house when their neighbors don't have any. So Interesting. Okay. And no one knows why they prefer No, we've tried to link it to uh, the color of the house paint or the type of siding, Um, but I think there's a number of factors there that um, sort of all collude to Mm -hmm. set up the perfect storm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what's the best case scenario with the introduction of the wasp? Uh, the best case scenario is that it just starts to reduce populations of the stink bug and it does not have any ecological consequences that we do not want. And that's important because there are a couple stink bug species are predatory and so they're actually uh, beneficial insects yeah. and they can be quite important in some agricultural systems. 
Okay, so hopefully it won't go after other stink bug species that are here naturally and are actually predators. Exactly. Interesting. Nature is very intricate and we never know what's Mm -hmm. gonna happen. And then what's sort of the worst case scenario, assuming the samurai wasp doesn't really have much impact? Well, there are many things we don't understand uh, about it. And the samurai wasp is native across the range, uh, the native range of brown marmorated stink bug, which includes Taiwan, China, Korean Peninsula, and Japan. We know the one that we have in Portland is likely from South Korea. And so we don't clearly understand there might be environmental adaptation among these different populations. So it may not perform well in certain Oregon climates or um, or within those climates, um, different habitat types. Okay. Nick and Weston, I have a question kind of related and kind of unrelated just because I know we're y'all are um, heavily involved with research at OSU and a bunch of other research um, organizations. How has the current administration affected your work? Do, are y'all nervous about you know funding getting cut or you know research not being done like like this anymore? Is that is that on the forefront of your guys' minds? Um, of course, yeah. There is some anxiety about that. Yeah. Um, but I, being an agricultural scientist, I think we have a little bit more security than yeah. say climate change scientists at sure. the current time. Why do you think that? Uh, well, just, just the, the immediate the yeah. budget proposals and whatnot yeah, are sure. less impactful of the EPA or, or yeah. of agriculture than they are of EPA and other yeah. departments in the U.S. Mm-hmm. level. And yeah. I'd say overall, the scientific community is a little bit on edge, um, and it's an interesting era. Yeah. And in the meantime, there's lots and lots of work that needs to be done, and we're just glad that you know, Nick has some reasonably stable funding and he's able to yeah. continue on yeah. moving forward. Yeah, cool. You're with Grow PDX Radio Show and Podcast. I'm your host, Weston Miller. We're with Diana Suarez of X-Ray FM, digital producer. And we're talking with Nick Wyman today about orchard crops in Oregon. And we're going to get to fruit trees and the home garden and landscape in a sec and take any gardening questions you all have. But now a little more gardening humor. (laughs) Why did the Golden Delicious go to jail? I don't know. Because he was a rotten apple. Oh, man. Oh. And <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and just say Golden Delicious are not one of my favorite varieties no, of apples. Me and in fact, up in Washington State, they're pulling out some of those older varieties and putting in a new one called Cosmic Crisp. Yeah. And it's out of this world, man. So, Nick, yeah. why is Cosmic <laughs> I Crisp see what going you did in? There, um, um, well, you're right that the consumer is sort of Washington's bread and butter used to be red delicious and and yeah. golden delicious and they're just kind of mealy I think yeah the <laughs> pro- part of the problem was they just they found out the consumer really wanted that red color and so oh. that's really what they kept breeding for oh. until they it is a really came bright, at the expense color. of other okay. oh, characteristics Think about and genetics the, and how they affect your things, guys. Yeah. <laughs> the Brown, Cosmic yeah. Crisp is obviously a crispier apple, and it's does it have any disease-resistant qualities or any other attributes that um, make it I a winner? I believe it does have some scab resistance, but that's not a big deal up there. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 
Um, let's focus on fruit tree crops for home gardens, gardeners and landscapes. At the Master Gardener program, I get a lot of questions, maybe probably, you know, one a month about people who want to grow stone fruit, like nectarines, mm. peaches, things like that. And I generally just say they're really hard to grow here. Um, why is that the case? Well, nectarine. Well, peaches and nectarines are susceptible to uh, leaf curl, which is a disease that we have in abundance here. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's really a limiting factor. Um, basically, if you're going to grow peaches, um, you should plan on spraying at least at one time or another. Um, we we're looking. We have a plot at the North Willamette Station looking at. Um, leaf curl resistant varieties and okay. seeing how well those hold up here. But, you know, this is probably one of the hardest places in in the world to grow peaches due to leaf curl. Okay, so due mm. to leaf curl. And then with the, the um, leaf curl resistant varieties, they're still going to probably need to be sprayed in order to get them established? Or you you trying them without any sprays at all? Well, um, we're trying them without sprays. Without sprays. And so okay. far, they're doing pretty well. They're doing pretty well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. If you can get a hold of resistant varieties, that would be the first um, thing to look for if you're considering planting peaches okay. and nectarines. And then yeah. what, what next? Uh, in terms of um, overall care for yeah, those kinds like of crops? Really, yeah, like are really set on growing cherries and peaches. What what should our steps be? Well, cherries, <laughs> cherries have their own set of problems. Yoinks. And yeah. um, spe- another invasive pest, spotted wing drosophila, mm-hmm. yeah. of course, really yeah. affects cherries. And... Um, before that, we had uh, Western Cherry Fruit Fly, which will get your which cherries, too. Which also affects too. cherries yeah. <laughs> quite readily. <laughs> um, so in other words, those crops are all really pretty hard to grow in the Willamette Valley, and folks might be better off spending their time growing things that are a little bit easier and supporting farmers who are a little better equipped to handle those things? I think so. It depends on how, I think it depends on personality types. If you can handle a few larvae in your fruit, then maybe <laughs> it's okay. But uh, if you want perfect fruit, then I do not recommend those crops for beginners. Yeah. I always say, you know, technically we're stronger than steel. The the acids inside of our bellies can break down steel. So, you know, what's a few larvae? Sure. Just don't look too closely. Yeah, exactly. Well, (laughs) it's a little bit of extra protein sometimes, I suppose, as well. (laughs) Now, Nick, I see a lot of old, large apple and pear trees around town, and they don't really produce a lot of fruit. What's your advice for people in this situation? Well, apples and pears are really good in that um, you can really bring them back. They can be rejuvenated. So through heavy pruning sometimes, that can really bring the trees back. Mm -hmm. Over time, they get too vegetative. But also in these situations, you need to look for other reasons why the tree might not uh, be very productive, such as it's getting shaded out by something else or Mm -hmm. has some disease issues. Yeah. If people are starting from scratch f- with apples, what, how should they approach that? Um, well, apples are so fun because you can really um, play with them. And yeah. I recommend to people that, A, you need to look for disease-resistant varieties. So just because you like Honeycrisp in the grocery store doesn't mean mm. that's a good apple to grow. Mm. It's one of the hardest to grow well. But that's and why it's the most expensive one. Yeah, <laughs> one exactly. Of them. <laughs> yeah. And it's even hard for growers in uh, eastern Washington to produce yeah. really well. Mm-hmm. Um, What's so, a good starter apple? Um, Liberty. Liberty's a great one because it's got scab resistance. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, gold rush is another gold really rush good is one. another one. Mm-hmm. There's a good handful of disease resistant apples, and um, I would say uh, call master gardeners oh. if people do want to plant apples to call our, your local master gardeners. Just look up uh, metromastergardeners.org yeah. and get our phone numbers. We've got folks who are trained standing by waiting to answer gardening questions, and That's then so cool. they can look up a, a table. Jonifree is another one, yeah. Yeah. Chehalis. Are varieties that I've had good success with in my home garden, and the disease that they help with is apple scab, which uh, you know if they're resistant and just don't really seem to get it, that's going to stave off one of the main challenges that people face in terms of growing those fruit for our area. But then there are other challenges as well, like the insects, like codling moth and apple sure. maggot. How do you recommend folks deal with those? Well, if you only have a couple of trees. Um, I think they make these mesh bags that are pretty handy for home growers that you can protect the fruit mm. with. So nylon footies, basically, yeah, exactly. uh, like stockings, and folks can get those from the Home Orchard Society. Yeah. They've sell Another bags great of resource for backyard yeah. growers. How yeah, can we absolutely. identify apple scab? Um, there are a number of resources online. Um, you can see pictures if you just do a Google image search search but basically it looks like a, a big blister on the skin of the mm-hmm. apple and it can be on the leaves as well uh-huh. okay. it, it names is a lot it looks like scab yeah it does. Um, what I it's like brown placky and uh you know when it's really severe the fruits are deformed pretty majorly and they're not going to be very palatable Got it. sometimes they just get like ejected off the tree as they're developing because mm-hmm. they're just not sure. going to do very much mm-hmm. um and i a lot of those trees that i see around town that are big are also old varieties that are also getting a lot of um, scab as well. Got it. Yeah, things like uh, scab and mildew, although they don't look devastating, they take a toll on the overall overall health, health of the, of the tree. tree. Yes. Yeah, and um, what, uh, thinning your trees is often neglected. What? Why do we thin, and how? What's the best way to thin a, a, a tree? Thinning fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to do it before the fruit gets too big mm-hmm. and the tree invests too much in, in those apples that you're just going to remove. But the benefit of thinning is you get higher quality, uh, better qual- um, better color on the fruit as well. Got it. Yeah. And you want to avoid, uh, a lot of apples will tend to overcrop, which can lead to breakage of branches or biennial bearing. So uh-huh. they put a big crop one year, then they have a hard time uh, producing in the following year. Got it. And the, the, the idea is that you really have to thin pretty hard, so you're removing somewhere around 60 to 80% of the fruit and just leaving uh, you know, fruit every f- six inches or so along mm-hmm. the stem, one fruit per cluster. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that, you'll get m- fewer, bigger, better apples than a bunch of small apples that are, um, are yeah. touching each other. And oftentimes where the apples are touching is where the codling moth goes inside yes. the fruit. Yep. And uh, when you're there doing the thinning, you can also remove any damaged fruit and hopefully help to keep the codling moth cycle a little bit at bay as well. Right, and that's also going to help you get more delicious apples because those other little tiny apples are just taking resources from your one big apple. Yeah, exactly. nice and juicy. Speaking of apples, Nick, um, tell us a little bit about the cider industry here in the Northwest. Oh, well, uh, the cideries, there's so much demand for cider that the cideries are having a hard time getting uh, single-purpose cider apples, which have high tannins okay. and acid. And so um, what 
the normal strategy is to use what we call dessert apples or table apples, which are sweet and lack the sharpness or the tannins that you really need to make a good so cider. So it makes a good apple juice, but not a good cider necessarily. Makes, yeah, and so the way they address that is by adding acid back to the cider after it's fermented, or there are a number of ways. But uh, basically, the demand for real cider apples is extremely high right now. So if folks are out there thinking of becoming farmers, that might be a venture to go into. Um, it's true, it's but it, it's fairly challenging. A lot of upfront costs. Yes. It takes a while for things to come into production. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you're talking about, you know, 50 cents a pound. So it's uh, relatively thin margins. Right. Got it. That's good advice. Nick, what inspires you about your work in the horticulture field? Um, I just like I like orchard crops because they're uh, long-term perennial um, crops, and so it's um, it's like a managed ecosystem essentially. And I I really um, think that there's a point that can be reached where we're really doing very little um, in in way of inputs in commercial orchard crops and. Yeah, once they're established, then it's uh, maintenance in terms of harvesting and yeah. um, thinning and all, but the overall... If you think about a natural ecosystem, yeah. there are so many things going on there that we can't even really wrap our human minds around it. Right. But in an orchard, it's like pared down to a manageable level where you can mm -hmm. conceive of how these different organisms are interacting, and you're sort of interacting with them as well. Cool. Right. That's Nick Wyman. He's Orchard Crop Specialist with the Department of Horticulture at OSU. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's been Grow PDX Radio Show and Podcast for this week. The show is produced by me, Weston Miller, and Diana Suarez and Will Romy of Uxray FM. Join us again next week at 1 p.m. Take care. Wait, before Weston, we just have two more quick uh, Go ahead. jokes for you. Okay. Um, the first one is, did you hear the joke about the peach? Nope. It was pitiful. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Yeah. And then the next one is um, I went to the store to buy some pears, lemons, and apples, and they didn't have any. It was fruitless. It was fruitless. <laughs> uh, fruitless search. I get it. That's a good one. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, thanks folks. Thanks for, for joining us yeah. on Facebook Live. Yeah. X-ray. <laughs>